This episode of Tell Me About Your Father is brought to you by the Other People podcast, hosted by Brad Listy, who's a great dad, by the way. His voice is like a platonic Midwestern hug. If you like books and you like interviews about their origins, Other People is the podcast for you. It's been around almost 10 years, 10 years of raw, unfiltered conversations with best-selling authors and people who are winning awards, comedians, rock stars, writers who are traveling through Los Angeles, where Brad lives, or maybe they live in L.A. already. That's fair. Eden LaPucky lives in L.A. I love that girl. Find new episodes every Wednesday online at otherpeople.com, otherppl.com, or at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. He took me way up to the top on the terrace, and then he set me down and he said, what did they do, and what do you want me to do? And I think now, looking back, now that I'm a parent, he must have been a wreck. This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Sohaila Abdullali is the author of a series of children's books, several best-selling novels and non-fiction books, and a long-running column in the Indian newspaper Mint, for which she wrote about everything from skateboarding to breastfeeding to finance. But one of the first things she ever published was an essay about surviving a sexual assault, which set off a chain of events that decades later has led to a seismic change in the way sexual assault is dealt with and discussed both in India and around the world. On this episode, the author of the recently published What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape recounts what it was like growing up in an eccentric upper-class Muslim family, that she wasn't at all surprised her father played a central role in supporting her after the attack, and having a pet crane that performed mating dances in the backyard for her father. Just a heads up, this episode contains frank discussion about sexual assault. It's hard to set the scene with my father because he's so larger than life that everything I say sounds like a like a Hindi movie, sort of. So I have to tone him down for normal audiences. Um, so I grew up in Bombay um, in a place called Chembur, which is was at that point not even a suburb of Bombay. We didn't even have a paved road and there were mountains and fields. Now it's definitely part of the city. So we grew up there and we would spend most of the year there and then there's a beach that my family essentially owns 60 miles outside Bombay. It's a mile and a half of beach where all the relatives own land. So the huge clan goes there. So I spent my summers there. And, he, and we are Muslim by background, though... By the time we were teenagers, we were all atheists. My family was very much part of the freedom movement against the British. My uncle, one great uncle, began the Indian National Congress, which is the first... My aunt designed the coins. And so, even though they were really conservative, my grandmother was the last person in Parda. They they marched with Gandhi in the Salt March. They went to prison. They founded the first Muslim university. And we've always had really powerful women. So even though my subsect of Islam is actually quite conservative. For some reason, my family is just full of really odd people. And so we do have a caste system in India, but I grew up in this weird kind of bubble where I really had no idea. My father has always been, his big passion in life was orchids. He just was obsessed with orchids from the time he was a teenager. He used to go into the jungle and collect them. And so he did all these odd jobs. He's had every kind of job. He worked in the family business. But all he ever wanted to do was grow orchids. So he worked. He was a younger son. And he worked for 
for the family business, but my grandfather was going to give him a house and all the stuff. My grandfather was shot to death when my father was only 17. So, you know, life didn't go exactly the way they wanted. What was that like as a kid? What was he like to, to hang out with? I adored him. I mean, I never had a single moment of my life where I didn't adore him, even when we were at odds with each other because we, you know, we were both strong. So it, I was sort of famous, like, when we were on the beach... Um, you know, we would go on the beach for every month of May, the whole family spent there. So that time it was very hard to get there and there were no supplies. So the women and children would stay and the men would all go back to town and come on the weekends. So Friday evening, there's this whole beach and there was a spot on the beach where everybody would gather to play games. We were all related. There were like 200 of us. So we'd play game and then I'd be looking and I would see my father had a very distinctive walk. He sort of strode. So from far when I saw him, I would race off. So I, I always loved him. He was great. And he also, he had this quality where he just thought that my brother and I were perfect. Like, of course they disciplined us and there were things he didn't agree with and boyfriends he didn't like and stuff like that. But he just thought we were just the most amazing things. And it's a great way to grow up. Because no matter what we did, we exceeded his expectations. You know, if, if we got came first in school, he'd say, well, I always failed. I don't know how you got so brilliant. When we came, to, we came back to America when we were teenagers because they wanted to put us through college here. So I applied to Harvard and I didn't get in. And when my rejection letter came, he was like, he just scratches and he said, I thought they were a good university. They can't be that good. Like, and, he, and he wasn't joking. He just couldn't believe that somebody would reject me. You know? So he, he, he was always very very grand. And he never treated you differently the way sometimes daughters versus sons. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think of the stories we tell ourselves. And I think he did. But it was in a way that didn't somehow matter. Like, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, I could get all neurotic about the fact that, say, if there was any physical stuff to be done, he always called Adil. That was my brother. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's sexist. But the thing is, I didn't care. I was perfectly happy to read my book. I didn't want to do the thing. So he was he was a product of his time. He didn't have any less expectation of me. He It wasn't like he wanted me to get married. None of that. Mm -hmm. But there was definitely, there were certain things that were ingrained in him, like the boy is stronger. But the thing is, the boy was stronger. Yeah. So yeah. what could I do? So yeah, it was different, but it was never, I never felt lesser. Yeah. And I, my mother did tell me when she was pregnant that he did want a girl first. Mm. So, How did he compare to, f like, the fathers of friends of yours at school? <laughs> he was really different. Everybody, um, everybody sort of liked my father. Right. Because, they, because he just never gave a damn what any, anyone thought. And we had, when I was growing up, we had this, he had, he had these dreams when he was small. He wanted to have an orchid nursery and he wanted to have Great Danes, and he wanted to have a Rolls Royce. But these were all, you know, we had never had any money. But he got all those things. He, when I was growing up, he had a Rolls Royce. It was a 1927, you know, jalopy, that thing. So every day he would drive us to school in that. And I went to a convent school. So the nuns, the nuns really liked the car. So every now and then they'd call him up and kind of hint and say, Mr. Abdul Ali, you know, and he'd say, I'll come. And then he would pile all the nuns into the car and turn down, you know, put down the roof and take them all for a joyride. What a joy. <laughs> and mean... then one time we were in school 
And in India, it's because it's still a young country. So especially in those days, 60s and 70s, independence was really new. So we made a huge deal out of Independence Day and Republic Day. Everyone and their parents would have to show up at school at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. And you had a flag-raising ceremony and you sang the national anthem. So we were all gathered there early one morning and they put the flag up the pole and it wouldn't unfurl. And it was like this big thing. And suddenly, my father strode out of the crowd and climbed on the flagpole and unfurled the flag. <laughs> so, so he, you know, he was... I should have been really embarrassed by him, but he was so amusing. Well, he sounds somewhat eccentric. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. what he was. He was eccentric, but not at all. You know, he was, could lose his temper, be really rude to people, shy, you know, he could do all those things. He just wasn't that way to us. Mm. Yeah. He sounds unafraid. yeah. Yeah. yeah, he would just march into, you know, he was this guy, I think I've only known two or three people like him, especially in India where there's such huge inequality. Um, I think here too, but here you're less likely to, you know, meet Bill Gates and <laughs> and also the janitor on the same day. But in India, there's somehow, you know, even though there's these strata, you're, you're more in touch with different people. He had this completely democratic way where he could be, rude or nice to anyone, whether they were Queen Elizabeth or, you know, the cook. It didn't matter what their station in life was. He just, he either liked them or hated them based on themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's really rare, especially in India. Yeah. He, he, like, I've never known him to be either condescending or scared. I'm sure there were things that scared him, but we never saw. Right. What did he study? Like, what he was didn't his, study anything. He never studied anything. He he went to school. You know that was a long time ago. He was born in 1928, so he went to school and then he he said he went to college for some time, but he never went to class and he played cricket and he dropped out. So he didn't have a formal education really. He oh he was a certified poultry farmer, <laughs> and that's how we got our genius visa to America. In fact, I remember at one stage of my childhood we had. We had we were doing poultry at home. We had all these incubators and chickens in the house. We had gone off on a trip with my aunt north of Bombay to Gujarat to visit some people. And and my father, because he was always into animals, we always had all kinds of strange animals in the house. So he said, if you can, bring me back a baby peacock. <laughs> so we said, okay, because that place has a lot of peacocks. So we went off on this trip and we kept asking for a baby peacock and no one had a baby peacock. But my brother went off on the motorcycle with this cousin. And when he came back, he said, look, there are no baby peacocks, but somebody gave me these two crane eggs. So we said, okay. And now I think about, it's terrible. Somebody must have stolen them from a nest. It, uh, but Yeah, who's got a farm of cranes? Like, yeah, yeah totally. so, and the cranes mate for life and it's all very terrible. Right. But we had no idea. We were very excited. You traumatized these yeah. cranes. So, so that's what we did. So we, and it was this, we were in my cousin or uncle somewhere. He had this little Citroen. So we put the cranes in the bottom and we drove back to Bombay. It was like an eight-hour drive. And then we arrived home and he said, did, we, did you bring me a peacock? And we said, no, but we got these crane eggs. So he said, okay, I'll hatch them. So he had a little desk lamp and he had a little waste basket and he put cotton in it and he had the eggs there and he had, he had this lamp on it. And, you know, we sort of forgot about it. This lamp was there. And then one morning, my brother went to look and the egg was cracked. And he was really upset. And he woke up, my father said, the egg is broken. My father said, no, no, it's coming out. But then my father had to go to work. So he left and we were just going crazy all day with this egg. Then he came home and was breaking more and more. And then finally it needed help. So he took out the 
he took out the chick and he took out both. So it was like a little crane C-section. And this dirty, you know, dripping thing came out. And then he, one died. The, the, and Hattie was the one who came out. And she was just, like, hideous. <laughs> and so then he wrapped her up in a handkerchief and he put her in his cupboard on his pillow or something. And then the next morning we went to see and I still remember, she was this beautiful golden ball of fluff. So that's an interesting relationship, though. You, an image in the book is your father kind of running around the garden with the yeah, crane. Yeah. Like they it bonded. was a mating dance. Was it? Okay. Yeah, because right. they do mating dances and she didn't have a mate. Can you take us to the scene of the assault? Okay. Where were you? What time of your life was this? How did that play out? I just graduated high school and I went back home for the summer to India. But we still had a house. It was my grandmother's house. So she was there and my father was there. My mother and brother were here. And I went for a walk one afternoon with a, a, a guy, a friend, um, in, on a mountain near our house where we've always gone. And at that time, I was, we were abducted by four armed men and they made us climb up the mountain they raped me, they robbed us, they, they just did everything. And I, I feel so bad because the, the truth is he got a lot more hurt than I did. I mean, yes, I was raped and it was awful, but he broke a bone, was in bed for days. So I always feel like I'm, I want that to be acknowledged too. And then they were going to kill us, um, but then they, we persuaded them that we were never going to tell anyone because in India, who tells? Nobody had ever told and then we went home. So my, the way my father comes into the picture is that we got home. It was, I think, 9 o'clock at night or something. And we were there. And we were just sort of sitting there and weeping. And we were hurt. And my father wasn't there. Because he had come home at whenever it got dark. And they said I was out. So he knew something. There's no way I was going to stay out after dark. So he went looking for me. And he knew which direction. I don't know now, even now, where he went. Uh, my nanny who was a live-in, you know, she was a, like what we call a bi, a, a live-in maid. So she was there. And in fact, she was the first person we saw when we came in the gate. And that's when we really broke down and lost it because it was so amazing to just see her face. So she was there and my grandmother was there. So my grandmother didn't, she, my grandmother by that time was quite old and quite deaf. So she, I, you know, she was sort of fobbed off by saying, I was robbed or something. I don't really remember. But, and she kept sort of saying it's time for him to go home, not knowing that he could not move because he was hurt. So she was sort of observing the proprieties and all that. And then my father came home. I remember sitting on the sofa and I just remember seeing him. It was so nice. He just, I saw him and he just, he didn't ask. So I don't know what he saw and now he's not there for me to ask, you know, because I wasn't visibly bleeding or anything. But he, you know, he must have known. Something was wrong. Or maybe someone said something to him at the, in the driveway. I don't really know what happened. He just raced across the room and he picked me up and he ran up four flights of steps because we had a big house with three stories and then a terrace. So he just picked me up and he just took me, just ignored everyone. And it just seemed totally normal that he did this and must have taken a lot of strength because he was a skinny guy. So he took me way up to the top on the terrace and then he set me down and he said... What did they do and what do you want me to do? And I think now looking back, now that I'm a parent, he must have been a wreck. 
he seems so calm and with it and much later i heard that he definitely wasn't you wrote about how there were police in the house and he threw them out yeah can you describe yeah, what happened because they all came and you know i remember now it was so all these relatives came aunts and uncles and some doctor came who was so embarrassed she couldn't even examine me and then all these policemen came and by the time the police came i was in a great mood because <laughs> i just not died you know i was 17 and they you know there were moments they hurt us they choked me they, they like bad things happened and then we escaped so i wasn't this weeping mess i was like yeah we're so smart and they and also i was wearing jeans and i had you know long hair which wasn't tied and so i didn't fit any description of any rape victim and at that time no one reported rapes anyway and the only rapes that were supposed to happen or like what you know what they call political rapes like a upper class person raping a lower class person to assert authority but here i was in this big bungalow saying that these poor men had raped me so they didn't they had no desire to file a case so they did everything they could to discourage me i mean first they kind of implied that we i had been out you know maybe to have sex with this guy and made up a story mm. and we were like that i mean that was just ridiculous we didn't inflict the wounds on ourselves but yeah. and then they then they finally said okay if you and i kept saying i want to press charges i want to press charges and then i kind of changed my mind i started to change my mind because i started to get all this social justice stuff like well actually it won't be a fair trial for them because you know i'm me and if i go to the slum and point out any four guys they're going to get beaten up and that's not fair what i which was very noble of me but stupid because actually the person who would have been vilified would have been me not them but i had all these thoughts and then finally they said well if you want to press charges you're a minor because i was still officially a child we have to lock you up in the remand home there's a remand home near us for for your safety and you have to stay locked up for the duration of the case which meant you can't go to america in two weeks to start college i was supposed to start college in two weeks you can't leave you can't and you know it became to the point where i my father said you can't go to remand then he put his foot down he said you can't go to the remand home you get raped so so then we he said leave get out of my house and they wouldn't leave because they said we have to have something we have to have a reason why we came we have to have something on paper if you're not reporting a rape you have to say you're not reporting a rape so i had to actually write a note saying i nothing happened which still bugs me you know i still want because i'm like officially a person who lied about rape so i wrote this thing saying we went for a walk nothing happened it was a false alarm and they took that and we left why do you think in every society it seems like the police do not want it to be true it's unbelievable to me and i think there's many reasons in at that time it was of course sexism and disbelief but it was also very much they didn't want this on their watch they didn't know what to do with it it would be a crime statistic they didn't want they'd have had to do something yes you know and that they didn't want to do they just want to go back to their thing but everywhere you know police are no different from us they have the same values and we're all weird about rape yeah but but i really my father was amazing and we decided and i think about it now he never said a word to me we hardly ever talked about later but he he bore such a double burden because my mother wasn't there 
So, and we decided not to tell her on the phone. Because she was in the States yeah. at the time. It just seemed so awful to tell her on the phone. Yeah. So we just called her up and said we were mu- I was mugged. Yeah. And then told her when he came back. So he had no one to talk to. Mm. And he just, you know, had to take care of me. And I was quite out of control. I wanted to run everywhere and do everything. And he, you know, was feeling protective. So I, I, I feel like he really did more than I even thought he did. You know, you have a kid and you realize what your parents did. Do you know how old he was at the time? Of yeah. Your um, he was 35 when I was born. So I was 17. What's that? Yeah. 52. Yeah. So younger than I am now. Yeah. We had a very open family. We, but we weren't like American families who sit around and discuss <laughs> feelings and, you know, all that stuff. And certainly oh. nobody had ever talked about rape mm. ever. So... It was, ne- it was not like they gave me any messages about it. It was never, ever... Dis- Whereas we stuff it down our children's throats till they're sick of it. And, my, you know, my daughter doesn't need to read my book because she's heard this way too much anyway. So it was, I can't even compare because for him it must have been... He must not have ever known anyone to whom it happened. Yeah. I mean, so it happened in my family when mm-hmm. my brother was six. We had mm-hmm. the unfortunate you know, luck to live next door to a pedophile who was our babysitter. But he was also a juvenile offender. Uh And, you know, I grew up in a small town in Ohio in the 80s, I guess, and it definitely wasn't talked about. So when it happened, I wasn't present. I was, like, away at camp, and I came home, and my dad was like... Your brother was raped while you were gone, and we're going to take care of it, uh, and you don't have to be afraid. And I remember him being very emotional, but then he never spoke of it again, you know? And neither of my parents, like, went to the police. Mm -hmm. My mother had all of the emotional labor of dealing with it actually went to my mother And she had called a therapist, Mm -hmm. but didn't even really realize that you're supposed to call the police. You're supposed to call a hospital. Um, It was just, it was dealt with as a, like a social worker's responsibility because of the ages of everybody involved were underage. But my my brother, I think, feels aggrieved to this day that... You know, he never knew, like, what our dad said to the perpetrator. Right, right. He has a memory of seeing them, my dad and this boy's parents, in the yard, like, having a serious discussion. And all we knew was that the family moved away, but then there was just no closure and there was no trial. They didn't want to you know, make a six-year-old have to talk in court. But really, that's just about making things easier for the community. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Um, But did your father talk to you over the years about it? Not that... No, but he did not talk about it. But he did not. For instance, you know, I never felt like we couldn't speak. For instance, they... Then I came to America and they it seemed we all took it for granted that I'd go to college. So I went. I was still on crutches and I went. And then after living in America, they kind of thought, well, 
they must have suddenly realized that people go to therapy. So my father, they didn't have much money. My father, you know, he said, you know, if you want to talk to someone or anything, then here's a hundred. I, I said, there's a support group I've heard about, and it's a hundred dollars. So he said, so here's the hundred dollars. You can go. And then it just seems so boring. <laughs> and I, I, I remember I bought a pair of black boots, black leather boots with that hundred dollars. <laughs> and I told him, and he said, that's fine. You know, that's fine. So it's not like we sat down and talked, but it was always... It was, I never felt like there was that much to say between us. It was all okay. And then also, you know, after college, I immediately got a job at the Rape Crisis Center. So it was always a topic yeah. that, that was around. Yeah. But we didn't have long heart-to-heart type sure. talks. About, but you write about have. your yeah. mother yeah. not being psyched about you being part of this Rape Crisis Center, but still showing up for you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. she was also raised where, like my father... You know, you can't have one, the one parents kind of is part of the other. They sure. become a team. So he was always this grand character. She's actually equally, if not more grand, because she's done these incredibly dramatic things, but she'll quietly do them. Mm-hmm. You know, she won't make as much noise as him. And she was raised up in a very repressed kind of way. For her, the way she dealt with things was to not talk as much about it and you try to deal with her on your own. So, But I'm not like that. I, I like to talk about things a lot. Yeah. So she, you know, she she didn't realize that. And she she thought that my work in the rape crisis center would just bring it up for me more. Mm-hmm. So she was being protective. But when I explained that that's not so and that no matter what they say, I'm going to do it. That's the thing with them. They were so great because they were very clear about the things they didn't want us to do. But if we did them anyway, they were fine. Right. You no. Know, they yeah. gave their opinion, but they... they... In interviews, you have been asked by journalists whether you were surprised at the way in which your father responded to your assault. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how much you found that to be racist. Well, the first, I remember the first person who asked me that was on this live BBC interview. And that was, I think, maybe before the book even came out. So I was not as used to it. And I was I was really taken aback by the question. I didn't know what to answer because I had never thought about it. I, I had never been surprised by how he responded because he responded exactly true to type. I mean, no matter whatever happened to me or my brother, my father was always there for us. So it never occurred to me that he wouldn't be. So no, I wasn't surprised. And yes, of course, it's racist because, you know, we all have these huge assumptions we make about other societies. And I've definitely found this thread and I've had to say it often in talks and everything. We'll say, wow, so amazing, your father. You know, with the implication that this brown man in a brown country and a Muslim man didn't just, like, do an honor killing the yeah. second you came home. But the fact is that there are plenty of progressive white fathers who are terrible about their daughters being raped. So, yes, there is a bit of that. But that's not what surprised me. I just, it made me think about it and thought, no, I would have actually been really surprised if he had acted any other way. You know, and throwing the policeman out of the house was just, you know, par for the course. Sure. Because <laughs> how has you being a public figure in discourse about rape, how has that impacted your immediate family? How did they respond? I mean, up to this day. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm really sad that my father hasn't been there for any of that. So he was only there for, you know, three years after, you know, the rape happened. I came here, it all just got put away. I didn't talk about it with him or with anyone, particularly because 
I had so many more exciting things that started sure. college and all this stuff. Yeah. And then when I went back to India three years later to research rape, I was still completely naive and thinking I'll go back there and I'll find all these people and they'll all talk to me and we'll write this thing about rape. And I went back and people were just shocked and startled. People said either there's no rape or nobody gets raped or it's a Western concept or, you know, my research subject was me and two other people I found in the news who were, who were the sort of stereotype rape, you know, very poor, rape by upper class, all this stuff. So I was so indignant at that time that I wrote a mag an article. That's how this whole book thing began. I wrote an article and published it with my photograph saying, I was raped, I'm not ashamed, it's not my problem, it's their problem. So that, he was there for, I was 21. But, you know, there's no internet. But that was the 90s, right? That was the 80s. 80s? Yeah, I was raped in 1980. This was 82 or 83 I wrote the piece. Yeah. So it was this little magazine in India. I wrote it. I came back. It made a... I found out... I only found out last year when a book came out that apparently that article has been taught in college courses and stuff. Wow. I had no idea. I just thought it vanished and I kind of forgot about it. Mm -hmm. So... He wasn't, you know, that happened. The only fall back, fallout we had from that was his brother, his older brother, somehow was visiting my grandmother in a house in India when the magazine showed up there, and I was here. And he picked up the magazine, saw my piece in it, and was just outraged and wrote me a real stinker in America with the aerogram <laughs> saying that, you know, the family name, this, that. And I showed it to my father, and he just laughed. He said, ignore him, Yeah, you know. So, the, so, but he wasn't around for all this stuff. Um, because the article then resurfaced yeah. a few years later yeah. um, in response to the girl who was gang Jyoti raped on, on, the, yeah. on the bus. Yeah. And so then this whole thing exploded yeah. again. It, it seems like he'd be really proud of you. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, but he also would, would, you know, scratch his head and just, he, yeah, he was just proud of me no matter what. Like he, <laughs> you know, my first novel came out and... The, and it was sort of loosely based on our family situation. We lived in a village, in a tribal village, and there was a father, mother, and a daughter in it. There was no son. And they really weren't my parents. They were just, sort, you know, because I felt like my parents had, it's too much. Nobody would believe it. So I kind of made a toned-down version of them. And there was a guy, the father in the book had a beard. And then I wrote another novel in which the father was gay. And, it, and everyone thought both were him. And he was just highly amused by that. The chapter about the tendency of, about our tendency as a culture, as victims or bystanders, to want to categorize rapes as better or worse right. than yeah, yeah, yeah. someone else's experience or their trauma. You use the example of a man you spoke to saying that for him, his rape was much harder to work through than the grief of losing his own child. Because at least with the death of his nine-year-old, yeah. or sorry, nine-month-old, he had a support system in place. And it was out in the open, what had happened, and he could share that pain with others. But when he, he was raped earlier in his life, the anguish around that experience was shrouded in secrets right, and silence. Right. And for you, because your father was such a supportive presence, his death was harder for you than that attack on the mountain. Can you speak to that? That was so I, moving. I can, but I also feel a bit leery about it because it's really comparing two such different things. Yeah. And also, if I think back now, you know, my father's death is more recent than the rape. One forgets. I mean, I don't want to make light of the fact that it was horrible, terrifying, painful, 
ghastly. But you see, it was horrifying, terrifying, painful, ghastly, all that stuff. But I didn't feel like that changed my... I guess it changed who I was because I was unformed anyway. I was only 17. But it didn't... It Maybe it should have, but it actually didn't shake my faith in the world. I could tell myself the story that this bad thing happened because it was actually the kind of stereotype rape that I keep railing against in my yeah. book. Because we all think, when we think of rape, we think of things like what happened to me. Strangers on a mountain, nothing to do with real life. So I that was very helpful to me because I could put them away and say this terrible thing happened and now I'm in the real world. Yeah. So, But when my father died, it was like the world ended because... He was always kind of the center of the universe. And he, you know, my my mother's equally, if not more powerful, but there was something about my father. He was sort of the captain of our ship because we all, everything that happened in our lives was because of him. It was because of orchids. And we all went along with that. So it was suddenly like the captain was gone. It was, it was very disturbing. But then even his death was like a kind of a party because it was very sudden and horrible and um, he just got sick and died in two days and I was there with my kid and my brother's kids and my mother was there but my brother and husband and sister-in-law were here so mm. when the doctor said look you don't have time we called them up and said come and then he died that night mm. while they were on the plane how do you how do you commune with him now do you find yourself I mean he's such a presence in your book which I have to say right. is is a rather breezy read when it comes <laughs> to, you know, rape culture. You just feel like you're talking to your friend and there's humor in it. So I don't, you know, I don't believe in afterlife and all that. So I don't feel like I commune with him. But he's definitely, we often kind of hear in yeah. our heads what he would have said or think, oh, too bad. You couldn't tell him. And sometimes I still expect him to be there. So in fact, it's weird about grief because... It's supposed to get better. But I'm not so sure because it just seems like as time goes on, people are more dead. <laughs> you know? Like, if Indeed. it was only three weeks, I could still... I was back in America. I could still imagine him there. But 10 years later, he's really dead. You take a minute to think about it, you realise just how yeah. absent they are. Yeah. yeah. So they become more and more absent. So that's a really... Maybe you're not weeping every minute, but they're sort of... People get deader. Yeah, they do. Which is awful. <laughs> yeah. They do. It's inevitable. It's simply life and yeah. death. That's the thing. And I guess it's how we go on. Yeah. Because, you know, if they didn't become deader, then we'd be weeping all the time or something. Right. Can you describe or explain for a lot of people who might be listening why it's kind of unhelpful for a, a father or a man in your life to say, I'm going to kill that person. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people think that that's what the rape victim needs right. is, you know, vengeance right. immediately. But see, I, I can't say that because that was only true for me. Mm -hmm. If somebody else, somebody else might like that. So <laughs> I'm not saying that's the wrong thing. Right. You know, if I had been in a different mood or a different person, I might have liked my father to say, I'm going to go kill them. So I, I'm not anti-vengeance. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm anti the state killing people. But I say, you want to go kill your own rapist? I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... So I, I can only really speak for myself. Sure. And for me, and I think for many other people too, 
it just seems like if you've just been violated, I was just, you know, I had this very nice childhood. Nothing bad happened to me. No one ever lifted a hand to me. It was all very nice. I was a very anxious kid. I don't know why. I must have been born that way. So I was nervous and anxious, but I didn't, nothing happened to me. Mm-hmm. So suddenly to be here, be beaten up, slapped around, cursed, being called a whore, being told, it was so awful. And it and I was it was just stunningly weird to me. So when I went home, I didn't need anything to remind me of that. Yeah. So for me, I didn't. You know, one of my my male friends, another one, said, "I'm going to find them and kill them." And I at that time, I didn't understand why I hated hearing that. It's not like I wanted them to not be punished, but I didn't. I, it was too much. It was too much. The emotion was too close to what had just happened. But I I don't want to say that it's wrong for all people. You seem to be surrounded by an enormous number of exceptional men in your family. Yeah, it's true. I've met some really rotten ones too. you have. And I I maintain my stance against the patriarchy, but it's not a stance (laughs) against men. Yeah. I also, you know, want to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning of we tell ourselves stories to make things okay or not okay. So it all, everything they did seemed okay to me. But I could easily be a person who told myself a story that made it not okay. Like like I think of my father, to, for my brother and me, and he's always been this, we really adored him and we respect him for, for many things. He had amazing integrity. But if you look at his life, we could easily have been other children who looked and said, he failed at every business he tried. He never made any money. He made some, you know, not great financial decisions. <laughs> so we could be those people who turned around and said our parents failed us. But that seems so weird because we didn't, they didn't fail us in the things that matter to us. Like they believed in us, they gave us the most fun. But, but it's sort of, it is your point of view too. I mean, it, it's not a point of view if your parents beat you and rape you and all that stuff. But otherwise... You know, it's interesting to me how we all, like, we have a different perspectives on what our parents should and shouldn't do. And maybe they just were very clever because they raised children who just thought they were great. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. they weren't so great and we never knew. Yeah, yeah. But I think they were. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father. Call our hotline at 888 318 DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888 318 DADS. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vecchio and Betsy Lerner. <laughs>